0: real noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
3: Hello, and welcome to the Napoleon Assist. Today, I am joined by a former army officer, Jim Deary, who is currently completing a PhD at Maynooth University, as we discuss Wellington's Irish Army, that contingent of the army that was so vital to success during the Peninsula War, but is either understated or just considered to have been limited to the Irish regiments. Jim, I'm really pleased to have you on. As you know, I've been a fan of your work for quite some time now. How have you been doing? Great, great thanks, Zach, and thanks very much for saying that,
2: yeah, no, uh, as we were just talking about earlier on, kind of looking forward to getting out of COVID no more than the UK itself over here in Ireland at the moment, so hopefully hopefully, the summer will be
3: brighter for us all. Well, look forward to war and peace too at some point in the distant future. Um, I want to start with the popular perception of the Irish contribution to the Napoleonic Wars because I'm curious whether what you've come across matches what I've come across, So, how do you think people tend to characterise the Irish as a whole during this conflict?
2: Yeah, good good opening question, Zach. Um, I think, to start off with, we could assume that the Irish soldier is Catholic. We assume that he serves as an enlisted man. He probably, or more than likely serves in an Irish regiment such as the 88, the Conic Rangers or the Inniskillens, or um, the uh, Dragoons as well. Um, we probably think that he comes from a rural uh, underclass within Ireland. Um, we Probably, when we read some of the memoirs on the positive side, the likes of Napier or uh, Rifleman Harris, the, the son of the, the, the Shepherds on the forces, sure, I get this impression of the, build character, the humor, those kind of aspects come true a lot. Other memoirs then, of course, paint, paint a kind of more, how to you say, negative uh, perception. They, they comment on the drinking, the excessive drinking, the hard fighting, the infighting, etc. The sectarianism between Catholics and Protestants, etc. Um, and then when you move up into the kind of hierarchy of the, of the military side, And I'm thinking particularly of maybe Dublin Castle back in Ireland, where the Irish army, as it's termed at that stage, that's the the, the troops that are garrisoned as Ireland are stationed. Running into a different type of perception, then it's coming out enough in some of the correspondence, a disloyal aspect, a concern about the security of Ireland, a concern about arming Catholics. So there's this kind of, they're disloyal as well coming into, the, uh, coming into the narrative. Others though, I have to say, if you look at Cornwallis, who's commander in chief in Ireland in the 1790s, he's a lot of experience of the Irish uh, and he, he's a more rounded view. He understands the context of Ireland and where they come from. And I think if you want to look at the Irish soldier in Wellington's army, that's where you have to start off, uh, have to start with is what does it mean to be Ireland be Irish in the 1790s and the early 1800s? What is the context that these men and women, because you know that that, that has a bearing as well? lot of these men are married uh, when they come into the British Army. Um, what is the social context that they come from? In my research, uh, I tend not to define or look solely at the Irish from those traditional perspectives or lenses of being Catholic or Protestant or, or indeed Irish. I tend to start adding a social economic lens and analyze them from that perspective. I think if you do that, Zach, you tend to get a different picture that you can then equate to the other perceptions you're getting, getting, and you come to a more broader and a more nuanced understanding and a more nuanced understanding of how they integrate into the British Army at this time and how they become. And it is widely acknowledged that they're effective soldiers. How do they become effective soldiers within this social structure?
3: That is the British Army at this time. So, in terms of the methodology, I want to talk to you about some of those perceptions in a second. But in terms of the methodology, it strikes me that what you're talking about is very similar to what Ed Cost tried to do in *All for the King Shilling*. Was that something that you were mindful of when you were kind of framing your research, or is that just something that's that's happened organically? I I think you're like me, Zach. You're a a fan of of Ed Cost.
2: And when I read the book. Uh, cover to cover. Uh, I remember that week down in Clare on holidays. Like it was an eye opener. It was just like the the methodology and the approach that he took. It was very hard to argue against it. Yeah. And I've adopted that approach. I have to say. And I am um, Ed Coss and Kevin Lynch is another one. Um, another historian who's who's done a lot in this field with his approach. So they've gone in basically into the uh, the minute eye of the military records. Ed Coss has focused a lot on the regimental description books which give a detailed breakdown of where the individual soldier came from, his occupation, his age, and then his career profile as he moved through, whether he got promoted and how he was discharged from the army. Kevin Lynch has used the uh, inspection reports of the regiments themselves, which are just a, a mine of information with regard to the demographical breakdown by Irish, Scottish, English and foreign within the regiment at a particular time. And it also goes into the, to the officers as well. So I've relied on those two um, as my primary sources and basically created two databases, one of officers um, and I'm using Chalice's list and Dalton's uh, Waterloo roll call as a starting point and then overlaying it with the nationality that comes from the inspection reports. So there's about 10,000 names in it at the moment and I've identified about half, 52% of the nationality. I'm a bit stuck at the moment with COVID, I can't get back over to Q to get the archives. Um, but the other database then is looking at enlisted men, and that's focusing on the uh, regimental description books with Ed Costs used. So I'm hoping to create a database of around 6,000 Irish, so I'm purely looking at the Irish with the enlisted men, I'm looking at three nationalities for the officers. So at the moment I have about uh, just over 1,000 in the enlisted men's database. So that's the approach I'm using, Zach. And you're quite right. It's giving me a lot of socioeconomic information that I can then use to, to analyze
3: what does it mean to be Irish in the British Army at this time? Sure. I I mean I want to take this in about five different directions at the same time. Let me let me rewind first of all to what you were saying about perceptions. I'm particularly struck by what you said about the kind of the perception of them being drunk and and quite violent individuals Um, I remember reading I can't remember the name of it now it might have been Donaldson uh, you you'll probably know this better than I do who talks about a recruiting party um, and um, having to kind of manage these recruits as they're brought from wherever it was that they were picked up and basically saying that you know at the drop of a hat they'll just start knocking 10 bells out of each other um, and unless you physically go in and, and knock these people onto the floor You can't stop them. Um, And so there is this perception of a kind of a wild nature amongst Irish recruits. Um, I remember the first time I was at a conference, somebody turned around to me um, and said, would you agree that the behaviour of the um, Irish during the uh, Napoleonic Wars was absolutely appalling within the British Army? Um, To which I'd have to say, I, I sort of see where they're coming from. Yeah. Because if you look at, for example, the returns for the the first 88, the Connacht Rangers, yes, um, it's quite clear that they have issues of discipline in that, that unit. But at the same time, there are plenty of issues in other units that we don't necessarily associate with that. The one that I keep going back to, because people like to put them on a pedestal, is the first 95th. They weren't yeah. the worst, actually. The Connacht Rangers, forgive me, Jim, were much yeah. worse when you look at the records. But the yeah. point is that there are, there are issues everywhere. So where do you think this kind of drunken, wild perception comes from? Is it just that we've picked up a few of these extracts and kind of joined the dots to create a narrative that's incomplete? Or is there kind of just a, a tendency to talk about the Irish in slightly derogatory terms? I think
2: there's a number of ways of coming at this. The first point I would say is looking at the eyewitness accounts and the memoirs that are written and when they're written. And um, generally getting it from the late 1820s, certainly into the 1830s onwards, uh, these memoirs are being written. And the context in which they're being written, Ireland is going through Catholic emancipation. There's a lot of political unrest in Ireland during the 1820s up into the 1830s. After Catholic emancipation is granted, you then have O'Connell moves on to the repeal movement. He's trying to repeal the act of union. So again, you're, you're, you're getting this uh, conflict at a political level. There's also agrarian unrest in Ireland that's still perpetuated from the 1790s onwards. And there's a lot of violence, uh, localized violence. I wouldn't say acts of insurrection, but it's, it's very much localized agrarian uh, uh, violence uh, going on. So you have these backdrop of when these memoirs are being written. And I, I, I would argue that it has colored certain of the perceptions, like certain, the, certainly the cartoons of Gilray in the 1790s, Uh, Crookshank moving into the Punch cartoons would depict the Irish, let's be quite open about it, as, you know, ape-like, cudgel-carrying drunken Irish. And this, I I think, has has carried through into some of those narratives. But then you look at narratives from Harris, Rifleman Harris, uh, the the Shepherd's, uh, shepherd's son from Dorsetshire. And he sits and he talks about the retreat from Corona, and he talks about his friend Brooke. A strapping lad from Ireland who I would not have been able to get through that retreat. I often think of him with fond memories as I sit at my work here in Soho. He then talks about the three Hart brothers who kept the spirits up of the regiment as they trundled across the Galician Mountains to the port city of uh, Corona in order to be extracted and he talks about them on the beach then when they landed uh, in in Dover and they're not worth a salt afterwards. They're the kind of accounts that I would, would lean towards, because you can feel the pathos, you can feel the camaraderie coming true in that. It's interesting you talked about the Conrad Rangers and, and the 95th, and when you look at the 95th, and you look at the Irish who are in the 95th, and a well-disciplined, highly effective unit, you're talking upwards in and around the 30% across the three battalions. The other very interesting thing about it is when you look at the NCO rank and the breakdown by nationality in the 95th. It's the same. It's corresponding to the national breakdown at an aggregate level. So Irish men are being promoted in these regiments. So my question is, if they're drunken and unruly and and, um, not effective soldiers and and less competently led and managed and controlled, why is an English regiment promoting them to these levels? And the answer is because they're effective soldiers. Drunkenness, I think, is a a common trait, and Grattan calls this out in his memoirs, okay, Grattan is Irish and he's with the 88, but he talks about the English and the Scottish soldier being as full and as liquor as the Irishman. And I I think it is a problem, um, and I get back to this socio-economic lens and looking through, or looking at the British army at this period through this lens, These men, whether they're English, Scottish or Irish, come from the same social underclass. They have the same experience of society and being an underclass within that society. And they bring those traits with them into the British army. This is the reason why they are integrated so well into the British regiments, because they have this commonality. There's more to unite the Irish, English and Scottish soldier than there is to differentiate them. That's what makes them effective. So I would argue that, yes, there's a problem with drink. There probably is a, a, an excess, or sorry, there's more of a problem with drink and indiscipline in with the Irish and the records bring that out. But to the extent that Oman portrays it in his history, of the British Army saying that those regiments within discipline are only at that level because they have more than their fair share of the scum of the town and the wild Irish. I would disagree with that, but I would agree with Carol DeVal when she looked at the 30th Cambridgeshire Regiment and she came out I thought her finding was very good they do and they are appearing more in the records but not so much more that they weren't that kind of appellation
3: that they're they're totally indisciplined and not effective soldiers do you think this is one of those things where it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy because I'm, I'm now kind of thinking about this with my teacher hat on that there was this phenomenon that we were warned about that if you've got certain kids who misbehave you've got to be careful not to keep looking for misbehavior from those kids. So yeah. do you think there is kind of this prejudice amongst, let's be honest, the English, and perhaps to a lesser extent, the Scottish um, officers, that therefore means that they are looking for misbehavior amongst the Irish? Because you, you raised this point about drunkenness, and there's an important thing to bear in mind here, which is that they're all stealing wine um, or, or any liquor that they can get their hands on, actually. And the army issues booze uh, instead of water because they, they can't trust the, the quality of the, of the water. Mm. So there are massive problems with alcoholism and alcohol dependency in the army anyway. So is it that, you know, these officers are kind of going looking for the behaviour amongst the Irish because they have this, this preconception? I think the Irish stand out because there, there's so many of them in the
2: British army at the time. There, there's 30%. Um, in and around there's various but it's in and around 30 percent um, I always go back to I think it's Kali uh, looking at the formation of the British nation the Irish they're not as as a country it's not as politically integrated into the United Kingdom even though we have the act of, of union in 1800 the fundamental point as well is as a British identity is forming it's formed as well one of the pillars of it is religion and the Protestant religion and of course the majority not all the majority of the Irish are are, 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 are sorry are Catholic, 75% of the population. Um, so you, you have that going on as well. So they stand out as a, as a unique uh, differentiator. The other, the other point I bring up, I don't think, I wouldn't say it's a prejudice among the English. I'd say that it's a prejudice among a certain social class of officer who doesn't have experience or as wide of experience of the Irish bell who writes about the irish he writes uh, he writes about a female irish woman and um, quite eloquently and i always remember her wax work used to be in the national army museum um, and she carried her husband during the retreat from uh, corona uh, daniel o'reilly or daniel o'leary i think uh, on our back and he always talks about her very fondly and um, and you know never never a man had a better wife than, than daniel o'leary is the way he describes this this irish woman and her devotion to her husband and her family um, so you get English officers like that who do get it. They 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 they're able to differentiate between the three nationalities. So I wouldn't say it's a purely English prejudice against against the Irish. Um, I just think it's more of a, a socio or a class uh, perception, and that the Irish stand out maybe as, as a distinct uh, regional grouping within um, the uh, the different nationalities that are in the British regiments at this time or at this time.
3: So would you say that Anglo-Irish? Officers, people, if you like, of Wellington's um, social class his kind of contemporaries out there, do you is would you say that they are more inclined to be less prejudiced, if you will, to to um, not have these these assumptions? Um, I don't. No,
2: I wouldn't say it's unique to the Anglo-Irish officer. I think some of them also have prejudice against the Irish, uh, particularly the Catholic soldiers as well. Um, They come from different... The the, the patterns, actually, it's interesting looking at the patterns of recruitment. So the Irish enlisted man, uh, you see an awful lot coming from the Ulster borderland regions, the west of Ireland to a certain extent. You see very few coming from Belfast City itself, actually. And on the east coast, they're not as as prevalent down along Wexford and Waterford, etc., when you look at the Anglo-Irish officer, the Irish officer, where they're coming from, they're kind of uh, on the opposite. An awful lot of them are coming from the East Coast because that's where an awful lot of they, They're drawn from the landed, the landed gentry class, the same as the English or the Scottish officer. They come from the same socioeconomic background when you look at it. Um, and they're coming into the army in the same ways. They're coming in through purchase, without purchase. They're coming in through the militia. And they're coming in through by recruiting by rank in the early days, all those same. They're they're using it as a way of advancement, the same as English and Scottish officers or English and Scottish families are for their their sons as such. So they're coming from a different uh, background to uh, the Irish recruit, uh, the Irish recruit soldier who's predominantly Catholic. So I'd say that could feed into their perception, but I don't think they have any more better understanding than the English officer. Maybe they do to a certain extent, but I, I would argue that they carry the same prejudice that their class carries. I think that would be the, the
3: point I would make. So let's now talk about kind of the realities of the contribution. You touched on this a bit already with some really nice quotes, but what would, if you were going to sort of create a, a, a positive caricature, if you will, rather than a negative caricature for the Irish soldier, what would that be? I think um,
2: they integrate very well into English and Scottish regiments. Let's leave the Connacht Rangers and the Inneskillens aside for a moment. Um, When you look at regiments, it's Kincaid who calls it out, actually Kincaid, I think he's at the ninety fifth Rifles. He said that some of the best regiments in the British Army at this time are made up of 50% English and 25% Irish and Scottish. he, He probably gets it right because most of the regiments that I've been looking at would bear out with that, those, those percentages fluctuate, but the three nationalities are broadly represented in it. So how did the Irish integrate well into an English regiment? Because they integrate very effectively, Zach, they're being promoted, um, you look at the 2nd Battalion of the 28th, the sergeant majors are, are Irish, they're from Armagh, to, um, two former weavers uh, from Armagh, um, so there's no discrimination against them, so they're effective soldiers and they're integrating well. Um, I think when you get down to Harris and you look at the examples he gives, he gives a lovely uh, vignette of these six to eight men around a camp kettle cooking their meal at the end of a day's action. They've just taken a French gun. And a number of these messmates, Cost brings it out, he talks about you have to look at the micro level in the regiment to understand how the bonding occurs. And it's around these six to eight men who share their rations every night in their one camp kettle. And Harris goes on to describe it. And you can hear the voices. He uses the vernacular of the Irish uh, coming out. And they're talking about colleagues who have been killed or comrades who have been killed. And you hear these English and Irish voices lamenting the death of their comrades. That's where it happens, Zach. It happens at that micro level that this bonding of men from the same socioeconomic class shared the same experiences growing up. They joined the army probably for the same reasons and they find themselves fighting against a common enemy, and we learn it in management class 101 group dynamics it's forming it's storming forming norming and performing and that's what's happening in the british regiment across thousands or sorry the british regiments across thousands of these um micro groupings of six to eight men and and that's that's what that's what's bringing them all together and i think differences related to Ideology, ideological, political differences, religious differences, they don't matter an iota. What matters is whether you're a good comrade, whether you'll share your rations, whether you'll stand shoulder to shoulder in the firing line. That's what counts. And if you can do that, you're in with the group.
3: If you can't, you're ostracized. Absolutely. This is what course refers to as kind of primary group mentality, that kind of that section, subsection, if you will, of even a platoon, not even a a kind of a platoon, but even below platoon level. And and as you say, what matters is that when push comes to shove, can you trust this person? Because battle dynamics in this period are not, although, you know, we should say that, you know, the primary group cohesion is still crucial today. Uh, During this point, you've got to be able to trust the other five or six men who are going to stand immediately to your left and right to do their job and stand there. And it's the fact that they both trust one another to do what is expected that holds these units together and enables them to uh, to hold their own. Why why do so many Irishmen choose to serve in the British army? I mean, this is a massive question because the English aren't hugely popular for, for the Irish. I think that's, that's fair to say. I mean, given the history, you've got Cromwell. Yeah. You've yeah. got the, the 98, 1798 rebellion. So you've even got recent history where there isn't a huge amount of love lost between the two uh, and yet uh, you've got an army that's a tool of control that's that's also in Ireland to enforce the the control yes you've got the active union but that's as much a kind of a punishment as anything else so is it just economics that causes these men to serve or is there something else there that makes them sign up um a short answer is
2: yes it is economics and the long answer is there are other factors as well So if we look at, at, uh, you talked about the British army being an army of occupation, et cetera, and there's no love for the English, et cetera. I I think as students of history, when we look at history, we tend to focus on the monumental events. So we tend to look at 1798 in this period. There's another rebellion in 1803. We tend to focus on that. We forget, though, however, that the lives of the ordinary person are not defined wholly by these, what what we see as monumental or defining events in history. The British or the English, sorry, have been in Ireland for 600 years, 700 years at this period. So we're well used to you being here in Ireland, (laughs) if you know what I mean. So what they're more concerned about is getting on with life and progressing life as best they can. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me.
0: Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
2: And when you look at it from that lens, you begin to understand why they may have seen an opportunity of let's buy into this system and see how this system or where it will take our lives. The Irish soldier who joins the British army at this time is predominantly from the labouring and the weaving elements of of society if you like. It's the same for the English and the Scottish soldier, that's the first point I'd make. The second point, um, the economic conditions in Ireland are pretty dire economic conditions in England are pretty dire, and Scotland for these men. They're probably, uh, they're worse, There's, the, the situation is worse in Ireland. To give you an example, Wakefield is an English traveller, he, he's a statistician travelling around Ireland, and he publishes his findings in 1812, and he talks about the average wage for a labour in the west of Ireland is, I think it's, it's six pence to one shilling per day. So that gives you seven shillings a week is the uh, average wage for a labour. In England, it's around 10 at the same time, 10 shillings. So it's slightly less. The other point I'd bring out as well about the socioeconomic conditions, there's no poor law system in Ireland at this period. It doesn't come in until the 1830s. There is in England. So there's that safety net uh, of, of the parish level support. It doesn't exist in Ireland. So for an Irish man, a young Irish man in this period, if there is no work, there's nothing to fall back on. If the British army are looking for men to fight in you know Spain and Portugal against France which by the way the Catholic Church have now seen as a common enemy because you know the French Revolution and its attitude towards the Catholic Church and it's Napoleon's attitude towards the Vatican etc it all feeds into supporting recruitment into the British army and the British establishment is also willing to concede on Catholic uh, uh, the penal laws and certain aspects of Catholic emancipation so that's the kind of economic argument I would make for wilder they're joining. There is one other argument that I'm beginning to see in the recruitment patterns in Ireland um, that uh, gives a different reason for why they're joining as well, that you don't see in England. I'm finding an awful lot of recruits coming from the Ulster borderlands around Armagh, Down, uh, Donegal. It's those counties in Ireland to explain. It's where the Protestant majority touches on the Catholic majority. It's where you're going to see sectarian violence and and, levels. 1798 as well happens around these areas, particularly in Armagh. It's where the Orange Order starts in Armagh as a protection against the defenderism, who are a Catholic uh, agrarian violence association. So there's a lot of sectarian violence going on in these areas, and the British Army and the militia and all are called in, etc. So you have counterinsurgency operations going on and repressions, quite heavy-handed repressions going on at this period. So you have a lot of men joining why are they joining i would argue they're joining to escape this fighting that's going on and the british army the regular british army is giving them a way out and you can actually see that pattern of recruitment beyond the napoleonic wars and into later periods of irish history as well where there's these flashpoints uh, geographically in ireland and i think that's driving irish men looking for an escape route as well as the economic conditions Um, It's it's an area I want to explore further in it, but I'm beginning to see it in the patterns of recruitment. Very heavy numbers of enlisted men coming from parishes along the Ulster borderlands where there's a Catholic majority and a Protestant majority touching.
3: So you you mentioned earlier then that you've got these men joining up, they they have a choice of, uh, well in theory they have a choice of Irish regiments, but plenty end up going into English regiments. Do you I don't know how far you've gone into this, but do you see the recruitment of that 25 to 30 percent of Irish troops within English, if you will, regiments happening because those regiments are stationed in Ireland and they're recruiting locally? Or do mm. you see migration taking place where um, some of these young Irishmen are, are travelling to um, England, and then being picked up by recruiting parties there. I found an interesting one. I, I did a, a
2: kind of micro-study on the 2nd Battalion of the 28th, um, uh, the, the, the North Gloucestershire's. Um, and what I was finding, their description book I think was from 1811, it was covering the period 1811 to 1816, uh, what I was finding was, I would say that there was 800 men I looked at, there was just under 100 Irish men had been recruited in England. And what I was very surprised at was there was 100 Englishmen recruited in Ireland, which I found interesting. And there could be a couple of reasons for that. I was actually talking to Carol Deval around this. It could be something to do with the Army of the Reserve that they had actually initially enlisted in the 2nd Battalion and then volunteered for general service while over in Ireland. That could be a reason or it could be economic migration to a certain extent. Um, But yeah, what you do find is, particularly with the northern, the guys from Ulster, you will find them traveling over to Scotland and the north of England if they've been weavers and looking for employment. This is what I'm surmising and not finding it and then being picked up by a recruiting party in England. You do find regiments are being posted into Ireland just to recruit up. That's certainly happening, uh, particularly with the infantry regiments. And as, as you know, Zach, the infantry is the backbone for Wellington's army. And that plays out in the uh, percentages. You will have the majority of the Irish will serve in infantry. After that, they appear in the cavalry in and around the low 20s. And the least is in the artillery, actually, for a strange reason. And that, that's actually replicated with the officers as well, Irish officers um, getting commissions in the British Army. It's the same. They're least, they're underrepresented in the artillery, cavalry, and then the uh, infantry as such. What you will find then is certain regiments will send recruiting parties over to Ireland to recruit. I was looking at the um, 52nd, uh, the Light Infantry, um, as part of the the Light Brigade. When they transferred into a a Light Infantry role, I think it was 1802, 1803, um, they uh, they initially transferred, they were two battalion regiments, and the 2nd Battalion was converted to the 96th Foot. And they transferred those men they deemed unfit for light infantry duties into the newly formed 96th. And you see that the demographics of that 52nd, the newly formed 52nd light infantry changes. And the Irish percentage, which is quite low, doubles overnight. But then what they do is they send uh, recruiting parties over to Ireland and they begin to recruit in Ireland, even though they're stationed down in Shorncliffe. Um, And it's actually some of the Irish officers who are being sent over. Um, Napier is with them and Roan is with them and they're sent over to Ireland. And the percentage goes up, I think, from 6% to 20%. And it finally ends up at about 28% uh, pre-deployment to the peninsula around 1805. Uh, They're at 28%. Now, tracing them through, they're an interesting case study, tracing them through to their peninsula days, the percentage changes again as they start to sustain casualties. And the Irish percentage goes down. And there's intakes, I think, from militia, English militia, and the uh, battalion then changes its demographics again uh, with less Irish. But what is interesting at this point is the percentage of Irish NCOs goes up. And the reason is the battalion is promoting guys with experience after their service in the, in the peninsula. And again, it gets back to my point. They're, they're finding Irish men capable enough to hold junior command positions in British regiments. But uh, the 52nd is also interesting because you can't say that a particular regiment is... Irish, because it changes with the recruiting uh, measures that have been implemented throughout the life of it. So militia intakes might change the whole profile of a battalion to more English, or actually uh, vice versa into being more Irish as such. But sorry, to get back to your question, yeah, recruiting parties are being sent over and regiments then are being posted in Ireland to to recruit
3: up. So, I mean, I I suspect the answer to this might be a, a no, but I want to ask it anyway you've got discussions of martial race going on at this point in time and you've demonstrated, as I knew you would, to to folks that actually there's a a much more fundamental point for for those serving in in the ranks, which is that can you trust them? Yes, you can, and therefore if you can trust them, promote them. But are there discussions going on about martial race? Because this feels like a really interesting tension that you've got recruiting parties being sent over to Ireland and yet at the same time you've got some turning around and making disparaging comments and others turning around and saying actually these, these Irish lads are great so mm. are there discussions about martial race because certainly with the Scottish there's talk about you know the the average Scotsman from the highlands and the lowlands and and the the regions where it's good inverted commas to take recruits from do you have an equivalent for Ireland? An equivalent
2: of um, like the highland regiments being wholly uh, Scottish is it like well, yeah. you'd have the Connacht Rangers, and we know Wellington uses them quite effectively as storm, as storm troops, if you like, with his Highland regiments. The 88th are interesting because they're they're, they're posted with Picton, I believe, isn't it? Is, is it the third division or the fifth division yeah, they're with? Okay. And Picton, <laughs> let's just let's just say Picton does not have a great love for the Irish. And um, uh, Grattan brings that uh, out quite quite quite. Uh, it, I think his book is written uh, in 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 defence of the Irish and, and defence criticism by by. Uh, that Picton had laid against them. Um, I think, yeah, the Irish do have martial qualities, um, and the Irish regiments are very effective. uh, I'm speaking about the Inneskillens, particularly at Waterloo, sustaining the casualties, the Connacht Rangers, etc. But I I always get back to Kincaid and, and his argument that the best regiments are made up of a mix from the three regional groupings. And I think it's Blakely who, who serves in the 32nd. He, he's a young Irish ensign who serves in the 32nd. And he talks about that shield, the United shield of the Thistle, the Rose and, 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 the, and the Shamrock. And ne'er can it be broken and ne'er can it be beaten. And I think it probably gets to that because the likes of the Connacht Rangers and the likes of the Inneskillens are outliers, Zach. The more likely is an integrated regiment of the three nationalities. And they're the backbone of Wellington's army. Like, take out the Highlanders, take out the, the Irish regiments. You know, Wellington still has a very, very effective fighting force with what he has in his British regiments. And these are the undersung heroes.
3: So how aware are the army's command commanders, if you will, um, about the distribution of these Irish troops? Because... I, I like what you say about how the unifier is is dependability, if you will. But at the same time, there must have been concerns because of the whole kind of debates around Catholic emancipation and so on, mm-hmm. there must have been concerns that you've got troops from a, a nation that is predominantly Catholic um, serving in British units. and if there's a rebellion, there is scope for mass mutiny amongst those Catholic, Irish troops and potentially amongst Catholic troops of um, elsewhere within uh, the, the the British Army. So I mean if the Irish troops have mutinied, let's be honest, the army's hamstrung. Mm. Is there any sense that the horse guards or parliament are concerned about the loyalty, are kind of wary about what's happening? Um yes and no. <laughs> yes.
2: Irish headquarters or Irish command in Ireland are concerned about mutiny. I'll talk about the Irish militia in a second. As regards horse guards, are they concerned about mutiny in the British regiments with their Irish troops stationed in Spain and Portugal? I certainly haven't picked up any in the correspondence. What I have picked up on is that they're very concerned of dissension or any reasons for dissension among the ranks. They're particularly attuned to religious differences. And not religious differences in itself, but anything that could um, cause tension among that. They, they stamp out orange orderism or, or the creation of orange lodges within regiments that are stationed in Ireland. Um, we know Wellington's views on priests and, and chaplains, etc. And I think this all stems from they don't want to introduce anything that could cause friction. And that to me would say they're probably attuned to the differences between uh, English, Scottish and Irish soldiers, if you like and they want to make sure that they facilitate that integration that is naturally happening and don't introduce anything that will, that will, um, will, will cause trouble. To bring you back to um, your question of mutiny, is there a fear of mutiny? I, I'd like to take that question from two angles, one with regard to mutiny and one with regard to levels of indiscipline. And um, I'd like to use the Irish militia. The Irish militia is a Catholic force recruited in Ireland from 1793 onwards, primarily for the defence of Ireland from external aggression, but they are then used for counterinsurgency operations pre the 1798 rebellion. I talked about defenderism and this agrarian level of of unrest and crime and violence being perpetuated in Ireland. With the defenders, it becomes more seditious and it becomes more regional and then it becomes more nationally based. So it's now becoming a threat to to the order of the state, as opposed to a localized crime that could be dealt with by the local magistrates, etc. The defenders unite, if you like, with the United Irishmen around 1795, 1796, and they then become a serious threat because they start to infiltrate the Irish militia. Now, why do they infiltrate the Irish militia? I think there's problems of indiscipline within the Irish militia, as opposed to likelihood of mutiny. They are being used, they're very quickly raised, so there's about 20,000 of them by 1796. There are new forces just being created in three years. There's no experienced officers. There's no experienced NCOs there. So that doesn't—that's not conducive to um, uh, discipline within a regiment. They're also fractured and dispersed throughout Ireland because of the nature of the counterinsurgency operations that they have to be engaged on. They're not being engaged. Or being used for what their primary role is or why they were created which is to repel invasion so they're not being formed in camps along the coast where they can prepare and train at regimental or brigade level they're now in small posts maybe commanded by a junior corporal or whatever and that allows for them to be infiltrated by the defenders and other uh, and the united irishmen to a certain extent but the british authorities and, and dublin castle uh, clamped down on it very hard um, I'd equate it as well to what's happening with the naval mutinies in Noor and Spitzet, and apparently there's correspondence between the two. Um, so there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a discipline problem as opposed to a mutiny problem, but they deal with it very effectively. Um, they take out the ringleaders and they execute them after trial, and the militia performs very well. Sorry, it performs satisfactorily in the 1798 rebellion. The initial responders to the 1798 rebellion are Irish militia regiments, that are Catholic regiments, and they're engaged fighting against Catholic insurgents. Uh, It's only later do defensible regiments come over from England and Scotland then, but most of the heavy fighting is over at that stage. Where they do balk or where they do crumble is Castlebar when they are up against French regulars. The 1,600 French regulars have been landed up in Mayo, which is the west coast of Ireland, and they break and run uh, in that instance. And unfortunately, they are defined by their action at Castle Bar by Dublin Castle and the the military authorities after that. And they're never seen as, they're never trusted as a force um, for defending Ireland. It it transfers to the Yeomanry, which is a predominantly Protestant force in in Ireland at this time. There's 80,000 Yeomanry by the end of the war. Um, So there's never really a likelihood of a mutiny, I think, with the Catholic soldiers serving in Portugal and Spain. Um, And any evidence that we do have of it is with the Irish militia, And I would argue it's it's a problem of indiscipline and a lack of focus of what their role is and how they're being used, as
3: opposed to a a threat to the state through uh, seditious activities. We've talked a lot about the rank and file, but what's the picture with the officers? Because you mentioned that you you have a database of of officers as well as uh, the rank and file. Wellington was famously Irish, but kind of Anglo-Irish, if you will. And his experience wasn't necessarily representative. So what are you finding there? Um, again, I'm,
2: I'm, I'm seeing a certain, I've about 50% of the database done. So um, of the 10,000 who are in it, I have 5,000 of those nationalities defi- uh, identified. And again, the stats are coming out the same kind of uh, for the enlisted men, about a third of them are Irish. Um, I think of about 12% Scottish. Um, and there's a, there's a good few foreign actually uh, appearing as well. And then they uh, predominantly English. Um, again, it's a socioeconomic um, filter that I think we should look through it's like they're from the same social class as the English or the Scottish officer and um, a lot from the landed gentry smaller percentage from the irish nobility or the irish peers the same as you'd find with the english uh, officers um, they are the sons of clergy a lot of the time and um, you have the middling classes coming in and um, the sons of the professional classes, doctors, bankers, commercial men, uh, not, as, uh, not as highly represented as the landed gentry. So that's, that's where they're being pulled from, same 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 background as the English and Scottish. Um, how they're coming in, how they're getting their commissions, exactly the same as well. You see them coming in from the Irish militia. You see them bringing in volunteers from the Irish militia and getting awarded a commission. You see them buying their commission. The majority of them are being awarded their commission um, and uh, moving into the army that way. When they come out of the army as well, you're seeing the they're trying to get involved. They're using it as a stepping ladder, as a career ladder. The same as um, the English are as well. Um, They're getting positions in the colonial administration afterwards. A lot of them are staying on in the army. I'm tracking them up to 1825, um, and the statements of service in 1825. I think it's or sorry, 1828 and 1829. They do the statements of service. Not a lot of them still in the army. I think there's a bit of a I wonder is there a bit of a, um, we're not picking up on the fact that an awful lot of them are coming in and out through half pay and by 1828 and 1829 they're still in the army. I don't know if there's that much of a mass demobilization among the officer class uh, at the end of the wars as such. I think it's still a big financial burden on the state, uh, this half pay um, uh, uh, category or status. But um, where are they appearing? Again, the same as the Irish enlisted man, predominantly in the infantry regiments not as much in the cavalry and distinctly less in the artillery. Now, you can explain the artillery because of Woolwich, the requirement to send your son to Woolwich and pay for his upkeep. You can imagine that's going to be harder for an Irish family sending their son and having to get him over to to Woolwich for a year and a half or whatever the course is before he's going to get his commission. Um, So that's that's what's coming out
3: with regard to their social background, Zach, and, and where they are in the army. And in terms of discharge, is there anything that you're picking up there that's kind of identifiable in terms of traits?
2: Yeah, trying to catch them as they come out of the army as well. Um, it's it's a bit it's a bit patchy. I, I don't have the final figures nailed down yet, but what I'm beginning to pick up on is uh, their sub- subsequent career to the army. And as I say, they tried to get involved in the colonial administration as well. And a lot of, the, a lot of them are going foreign. Um, a lot of them see the only ones that you're picking up really are the more famous ones are the ones who have completed a statement of service in 1828 1829 and they're basically the ones who are either still in the army or they're getting a pension i.e they survived the war the casualty rates are actually quite high among the Irish for some reason though as i say, i haven't finished out the database yet because i put in halls um biographical data of the wounded and killed um, from the peninsula and um, so i've been able to track that and um, the interesting ones How I'd surmise it is they are looking to stake a place in the expanding British empire, no more than an English man or an English family or a Scottish family. And you're seeing that in the jobs and subsequent career. You have Rowan, the the officer i mentioned from the 52nd, there's two of them. uh, Two brothers are in the 52nd. It's Charles Rowan who ends up eventually as one of the first commissioners of the London Metropolitan Police. So you see them going into areas uh, like that as such. And um, colonial administration still serving in the army, um, either on half pay or, or pursuing a career in the army. Yeah, yeah. Wellington yeah. is interesting, Zach, actually, bringing him up um, because I think there's this difference as well. There are officers like Wellington who, again, see their career progression not being defined as Irish and buying into the English establishment and, and seeing their career path for themselves and, let's face it, for their family. Uh, through, through the English. There's an interesting one about Wellington. I think uh, after the war um, they wanted to uh, in Ireland, in, in Dublin they wanted to give them land down in Kildare and a house down in Kildare but I think it was quietly sidelined because uh, absolutely house was on offer instead so I think that that kind of sums up not criticising you know, we all have to make our way in the world and, and that's, that's, how, uh, that's how Wellington chose his.
3: Yes, I mean the word talks about a, a Waterloo palace even at one stage weren't they but they were also shelled with the the, with the Apsley house coming on the market and then subsequently being expanded but Marcus Cribb is the the person who knows all about that you can't be in
2: address number one London no
3: (laughs) no you really can't but that's that's very typical of the man isn't it to just say this is the number one spot in London anyway um so with the rank and file when they're discharged have you been able to pick up anything from them do you see them represented proportionately in the chelsea pension records for example or do they just kind of disappear and we we don't really pick up on them no i'm beginning to pick up on
2: them now actually Um, um i don't have definitive numbers at the moment but i will once i once i um have the full database populated but my what i am picking up on is they are being discharged um in the same i would argue the same ratio as as english and scottish and they're getting pensions yes they are getting pensions out pensioners or full pensioners i haven't got into the pension records in chelsea or kilmainham yet i'm basing it on the um, regimental description books which in some instances aren't always as complete as other regimes. some regiments would be very good and the 45th actually are very good i've been looking at their 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 data they actually give the amount of pension that they're getting as well Um, And I was looking at I think it's the 57th I was looking at who give a like a, a nearly a confidential report on the man's character as he leaves. And I'm picking up on, you know, uh, for Irish soldiers, a remarkable character, thoroughly despicable character has been, you know, he's included in the numbers that are being for reduction because he's a thoroughly disreputable character. Look, they're the same type of people as English and Scottish. And again, it gets back to my premise. They're being treated the same in the regiment sack. That's the the main point. They're being treated the same. I saw a lovely one there from um, two guys in the 45th. Uh, one of them, the English uh, guy, he joined as a 10 year old boy in 1794 and in 1802, an Irish guy comes in um, Gannon is his name from Galway and they're both 17. But what's very interesting is in 1825, they're in Salon and Gannon dies in Salon. And it just has at the end of the in the common book at the end, uh, all remaining pay bequeathed to drummer Giles, who's his friend from Shropshire you know, that kind of sums it up at a micro level, what's happening in these
3: regiments um, at the end of the day. It really does. Let me ask you one last question, then, thinking about kind of the broader perspective. Linda Colley, who, as you can imagine, has come up a, a few times in interviews with people for, for this Irish month um, focus, makes this argument about how, in some respects, the Napoleonic Wars form part of a, a wider project of bringing all four nations of the Union together and, and she does uh, as um, Katrina Kennedy outlined kind of say well in some respects it doesn't work for Ireland but when you look at the way in which people try and spin particularly Wellington's successes during the Peninsula War in Waterloo there is that evidence that emphasis on all four nations of the Union having played a role mm. do you feel that there is a, a greater respect at a popular level that's afforded to the Irish after the Napoleonic Wars than there was before? It, within the British society, British army, or within or Ireland? Perth.
2: Well, I think, um, first of all, the Irish contribution during the Napoleonic Wars, due to the fact that, let's face it, it's it's referred to as the Great War. It's I would argue it's... it's, it's one of the first total wars for, for, for Great Britain. And it, in that context, it, it has to have a, a, an impact on society, both in England and Ireland. Um, I think it's a starting point for what you see as the Irish, the celtic if you like, of the British army during the early Victorian period up to the famine, I would say. At the famine, it drops off. Um, uh, but it, it, it comes in again afterwards and right up until the First World War. And you look at what Richard Grayson is doing or Timothy Bowman when they're looking at the Irish regiments in the Great War as well. You can trace that this is the end point to what has started in the 1790s and, and, and the 1800s. Um, with regard to uniting the four kingdoms, or, or sorry, the, the four regional identities, um, I, I, I've looked at Collie's work. Uh, I, I would agree with what's been said. I think it's very interesting that, as a as a pillar of the British establishment, the British Army, I would argue, has done more to integrate Catholics and Irish than the Act of Union has ever done. And indeed, they they talk about the military, the Militia Interchange Act in 1811 as building on the work of what the. Uh, active Union has done in trying to bring the nations together. Ultimately, it fails, um, I think, because there's just too much going on in Ireland afterwards. Catholic Emancipation, the Repeal Act, the Land War. They never, I don't think England has ever got to the root of solving the social and political questions for Ireland. I think the British Army probably did it very effectively because it probably had one mo- key motivator that the others didn't. There was a con- common enemy there as well. Um, and it had one task to do and it was very it was much more simplified than trying to address all the social economic and political ills and wrongs that had gone on in ireland during during the period from the 1800s onwards um, so yeah I, I would look on the british army as remarkably you know as i said a pillar of the british establishment allowing for that integration that didn't happen with the act of union
3: jim i've absolutely loved this sometimes with interviews you just get to sit back and and enjoy somebody chatting to you about uh, a topic and I thought this was going to be a great one it absolutely was thank you very much for joining me. Well thank you very
2: much for the opportunity Zach and happy St Patrick's Day.
3: That was Jim Deary joining me to discuss the experience of Irish soldiers in the British army during the Napoleonic Wars. You can stay up to date with Jim's brilliant research by following him on Twitter at jdearyjim. If you enjoyed the episode, please remember to drop a like. If you're on YouTube, why not hit that subscribe button and the notification bell, and wherever you are, leave a comment or a review. It's always great to hear from you, and remember, you can find me on Twitter at ZWhiteHistory. A big thank you to my Patreon supporters, who are getting exclusive perks while supporting this podcast, including a 10% discount from Pen & Sword Books. For more more information, go to patreon.com forward slash Napoleonicist. A particular shout out to my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Rob Griffith, Alex Churchill, An Anonymous Canadian, Brendan Teeling, John Haynes, Anna Vakulenko, Beatrice de Graaf, Lynn Dawson, Jamie Kingston, Roy Muir, James Bevan, Lucy Tatner and Jim Deary. Though to be clear, that's not why Jim got an interview. Join me next week when I'll be speaking to Marcus Beresford about his relative, the Marshal William Carr Beresford, in a two-hour-long odyssey of an interview. Until then, I'm Zach White. This has been Irish Month from The Napoleon Assist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe. And as always, thank you for listening.